you can find a lot of that kind of thing on TikTok. You know, people don't think of it as an educational medium. And definitely when I go there, it shows me people doing fun dances and I love that or cooking videos and that's great. But if you search the right hashtags, there's edutalk, E-D-U-T-O-K. There's hashtag learn English. There's a whole bunch of educational hashtags you can search to get videos about language. And that can be a really fun way to learn when you're just swiping through. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 136. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. I'm your host, Benny Lewis, and today I am talking to Mignon Fogarty, who is so well known from the Grammar Girl brand. You've absolutely come across her stuff either from her blog or her podcast or her uh, best-selling books, and she's made appearances on the likes of Oprah. She has just the most amazing story, which is very inspiring for people who are trying to, to share any kind of encouragement with any aspect of languages to hear this level of of um of like a change that you've made and how much you've inspired a lot of people. So I'd love to share that story with everybody listening. So thank you very much, Mignon, for uh, joining us today. Thank you, Benny. Thanks for having me. I, I do think one of the things that keeps me going is hearing how much I've helped people when people write in and let me know. Yeah, and I, I'm sure you hear it all the time. And I I've talked to multiple people who are huge fans of your of your work. So. Let's let's take a few steps back. I would love to hear how this passion was sparked because when we think of grammar, uh, for a lot of people, there is so much of a pushback. It was definitely the case for me when I took uh, grammar with a foreign language. In my case, it was German. I I kind of had this extremely negative association of like grammar is boring, grammar is dull. And that fortunately has, you don't have to convince me of anything because that's changed over the years. Now that I've gotten into languages, I have a huge appreciation for grammar. Um, but like in your case, how did this, uh, this love for grammar initially get sparked? Yeah, well, I was always a little writer. You know, my mom would take me to the library when I was a kid and and sign me up for the writing classes to keep me busy during summer because I was an only child. So, um, you know, from a very early age, I was writing and loving it and encouraged, encouraged in pursuing that. Um, you know, I was on the school paper when I was in high school and I worked at the paper in summers when I was in college. And it's just something I've always loved. And I did get a degree in English. But then I found that I was a working writer. So I I it was um, I was a freelance science and technology writer before I started Grammar Girl. And I realized I was looking up all the rules myself every day in the Chicago Manual of Style or the AP Style book, depending on who my client was. And I was like, I have a degree in English. Like, why didn't they teach me any of this? You know, I had studied the symbolism of swords in Beowulf, <laughs> you know, but but didn't have a lot of um, mechanical instruction when it came to English. And at the time I was a podcast listener and I had sort of fallen in love with podcasting. And I thought, well, I will just put out a quick little tip once a week because I'm already looking up these rules and I'm already making up memory tricks 
to help me remember the rules, uh, I'll just share that with other people to try this cool thing I love called podcasting. And so I, uh, I put the Grammar Girl podcast out. I had a different podcast first. I was doing a science podcast because I was a science and technology writer. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll just do this quick little writing tip thing too. And much to my surprise, it just took off. There was obviously a hunger for something like this. And within, I think it was six weeks, it was number two on the Apple podcast charts. It just, you know, beyond all my wildest expectations. And, and I thought to myself, well, this can't last, <laughs> you know, and, um, but it turns out writers get very excited that a writing podcast is doing well. So then I got a bunch of um, media I got covered in on CNN. And, and uh, my, my big break was really when the Wall Street Journal wrote about Grammar Girl. And um, then I New York publishers took notice and I got a three book deal and formed a partnership with Macmillan Publishing to also um, work with me on the podcast and the podcast network. By that time, I had also started a podcast network and uh, Quick and Dirty Tips. And so I partnered with Macmillan on Quick and Dirty Tips, the network, and on a three book deal. And this was before podcast advertising really took off. So it was really the book deal that let me quit my day job in the beginning. And then, then together we grew the network into you know, a, a profitable business. So that, that's just an amazing story. It's so, so like you said, there was this hunger for people to, to hear about writing and, and even grammar itself. And I, I've uh, come across a lot of people who are extremely passionate about grammar, whether it's with foreign languages or their native tongue. And especially people listening to this podcast tend to have a, a roadblock with grammar when it comes to foreign languages and like, is there any, any advice you'd give for somebody who at the moment in their mind, grammar as a concept is, is a negative. It's a net terrible thing in, in their lives for whatever reason. Uh, like how would you potentially convince them, uh, to come to the other side and to, to take an appreciation of this fascinating aspect of linguistics? Well, first, I'll acknowledge that it can be really frustrating and complicated. And um, the words can be a barrier um, because they, they're so off-putting. I try actually not to use the grammar words um, whenever I can avoid it. Um, but I think I've always loved puzzles. So I love, um, you know, word puzzles, but like paper, you know, the cardboard puzzles, all kinds of puzzles and problem solving. And I think thinking of, of uh, language and grammar as a puzzle to be solved, because grammar is really just about how you put together a, lang a, a sentence. Um, and so I think thinking of it as a puzzle and you're just learning the rules to the puzzle and, you know, maybe you're fighting with it, like trying to find that last piece in the puzzle with the, the corner of the blue bird on the green background, you know, that can be a frustrating thing when you're putting together a puzzle on the table. But when you, when you get that piece in place, when you spend the time trying to figure it out and it finally falls into place, it's a really satisfying feeling. So, so I think, you know, look for the payoff when you get it right. Don't focus on the frustration while you're searching for it. And one of the things you mentioned that you started doing in your podcast episodes were using memory tricks. And I find this very interesting because uh, I am a big fan of mnemonics uh, when it comes to learning foreign languages. 
But to be honest, all of the mnemonics that come to my mind are all about vocabulary. So I can create some interesting association with a word that I'm trying to learn. And I'm, I'm drawing a blank at how you could use memory tricks with grammar. So could you explain that to me in a bit? Yeah. I mean, I think that's my, my sort of dirty little secret is like grammar is actually not what I do. Usage is um, primarily what I do. My memory tricks are for diff- remembering like the difference between affect and effect, the two spellings of that word. And I think of a raven, um, a big black raven driving, flying over an avenue because A-V-E-N in raven and avenue stand for affect verb, effect noun. And that helps me remember which word to use in which situation. But I don't do a lot of, um, you know, this is a preposition and that's a participle. Um, you know, we, we talk about them in the sense of um, like uh, standing in line versus standing online. That can be really frustrating for people learning English because you know, most of the country will say we're standing in line, but in New York and parts of New Jersey, people say they're standing online and people go there and they're like, oh, it sounds so wrong. But prepositions are one of the things that can change a lot in dialects. Um, you'll just find, are they, sometimes they mean different things. Sometimes they don't. It's, but um, grammar, it's funny because linguists will get upset that I call myself grammar girl because they're like, what you do isn't grammar. That's not using the word right. But the average person, if they are having trouble with the difference between affect and effect or, you know, even thinking where to put punctuation, they'll say, oh, I'm bad at grammar. Um, so in the general population, grammar sort of is a catch-all phrase that means sort of all of writing and the little rules around it. Um, so it means much more, it's a much broader category than the structure of language. Yeah. I ran into that online thing when I was uh, in New York and it really confused me because especially, uh, in the last couple of decades that online has just taken on a completely different meaning. So, um, like this, this sense of, uh, variety with grammar and evolution with how it changes with time. How do you stay on top of these things? Because like, you know, you are naturally obviously getting your own exposure to the language, but we like, I know I just don't really think about how language evolves. And unless I'm faced with an obvious difference, like online in New York, uh, it's just not something that I would imagine I, I could even talk about at length. So where do you get the inspiration and how do you discover how things are changing and how they're different in different places? Fascinating. I, one, I think it's so much fun and so fascinating that I just, I, whenever I see it, I notice it and I get excited about it and I seek it out. But it, as, it's funny, as I get older, it's harder because most language change happens in young, young women tend to be the vanguards of language change. Um, if there's an interesting language change happening, odds are really good that it's happening, you know, with 16 year old girls. <laughs> and, um, you know, for a few years, I, I was a professor, uh, I was a journalism professor for three years at um, the University of Nevada in Reno, Reno. And that was great because I was around, you know, they weren't 16, they were 18, 19, 20, but I was around younger people a lot. And so that really helped me stay up on what's happening with language. You know, now I think, you know, on social media, I see 
I hope that I see um, the the things that are going on with language because it's easy to be exposed to a lot of different kinds of people on social media, on Twitter and on Facebook with, you know, just my my nieces, for example, you know, what they're up to, um, you know, on Instagram and things like that. Um, yeah. And then really, I just on Twitter, I've curated a list of language people who I follow that that talk about this and actually linguists. So, you know, they are commenting all the time about the interesting language things they see. And that helps me become aware of them too. So the, it's kind of hard to draw the line between what's an interesting aspect of languages, what's definitely the language just naturally evolving and what's, what's wrong. And like, what, what, how do you kind of, uh, like decide whether or not this idea of prescriptive grammar rather than descriptive grammar is something that you're going to take a, like an actual side on and decide, you know what, you just should not say this rather than, well, actually a lot of people say it this way. So, you know, if you, you might want to say it this way if you're in formal situations, but like, do you, are there any like things that would be hard lines for you that you would say, this is just incorrect uh, versus this is something that's emerging. And how, how do you decide where to put that line? Such a great question. Um, I, it's so funny because over the years, I've become less prescriptive. I mean, I, I wasn't like ridiculously prescriptive to start, but, um, you know, I do go back, you know, I've been doing this more than 16 years. And so I, um, you know, obviously the rules about semicolons haven't changed. <laughs> so, you know, I update old episodes a lot now, um, you know, make the, and it's so funny. I find that I can always make them better and add something or there's a news hook. But um, one of the things I frequently change is that I used to say something was wrong and I've frequently take the word wrong out and do say something like stand this is standard english um, but it's different in different dialects or things like that um but so i'm i'm much more um accepting than i used to be of of different ways of speaking because as i've learned more about language you know it really is just your register who your audience is who you're talking to like like, like there are a lot of things that people say you know, people would say, um, like, conversate is wrong. And it's not wrong. In certain dialects, it's completely standard and actually has its own meaning. Like, it's a specific way of communicating is when you're conversating. It's it's like a different thing than having a conversation. So it, it not only is it acceptable in that dialogue, dialect, but it even has its own meaning. So I've come to learn things like that over time. Like, you know, it's, it's easy to pick up a lot of people saying, oh, I hate this word. Well, they just haven't been exposed to it in the way it's used naturally, maybe. Um, but there are some things, I guess. So the only thing that comes to mind right now is irregardless. You know, people say it's not a word and it actually is a word. So irregardless, you can find it in all dictionaries. It's usually labeled as non-standard or, you know, something like that. It's definitely a disparaged word. So when people use it, you know what they mean. You know, don't be pedantic and say it has no meaning. But it's a word that if you use it, pretty much 90% of the people are going to notice that it's wrong they're going to look down on you, like wherever you are. It's not like it's part of one dialect. It's not acceptable in a certain communities, like maybe more so in some than others. But, but I would say if I am giving you language instruction, 
pretty much the only reliable thing I can say to you about irregardless is that you probably shouldn't use it. So you, sh- you shouldn't use it irregardless. Irregardless <laughs> of who you are talking to. Yeah. Uh, it's probably a word that you would be wise to avoid. So other other than like specific vocabulary, like wor- words uh, like conversate, um, do you see general trends with how English has been evolving in recent times, whether that be the influence of the TikTok generation or things related to technology, like using abbreviations a bit more. Uh, like, what, what do you see as the direction English is kind of pushing towards, or at least one aspect of English? Mm-hmm. The thing I think I've noticed the most in the last five or 10 years is um, less punctuation. So um, it's funny, I was at a, a meeting, a, a, a conference for copy editors and some of the again younger women, they weren't 16, but there were younger women who were giving a talk about social media and they were saying, you know, you probably shouldn't put a period at the end of your sentences on Twitter. And there was a gasp in the crowd. There was literal noise from the crowd. Like, what are you saying? We're copy editors. We have to put periods at the end of our sentences. But they're like, you know, that's just not what people do anymore. Um, you know, and, and then then there was a whole discussion like, well, maybe if you're a copy editor, you need to be held to a higher standard because your clients might be watching or reading. And if you don't, you know, they would want to see periods at the end of your sentences. But in general, for people who aren't copy editors, uh, there's a real move toward using less punctuation. Um, you've seen, you've probably seen articles in the, even I think the New York Times had one about how um, you know, periods at the end of a sentence in texts seem hostile to younger people. Like if you write, you know, where were you yesterday? Well, that would be a question mark. But, you know, people they'll think their parents are mad at them or something when they put periods at the end of their sentences because just nobody does. Um, so that's a really interesting development. And even I mean that so that that part is new. But over even the long arc there's been a move away from punctuation. If you go back and go into Google Books and look at something from, you know, 1850, it will have so many more commas than you are used to seeing. It will blow your mind. You'll be like, what are, there's a comma, like every three words, it just looks weird. And so, you know, even over, you know, a couple hundred years, almost a couple hundred years, We've moved away from using so many commas. And then um, the AP style book, the um, style book of the Associated Press, sort of has a, a philosophy um, that you should use as few hyphens as you can get away with. So they've sort of over the years also said, you know, maybe not so many hyphens. So there's just, you know, less com- fewer commas, fewer hyphens. Now, not even things at the end of your sentence, if it's a period. So definitely a move away from punctuation. One of my favorites is how the ellipses are are uh, perceived between different generations. And it's definitely caused a lot of awkwardness in how for one person, it, do- it doesn't have the same emotional hesitation value as it would be for another. So like even grammar points like this might cause just as much confusion as using the wrong vocabulary term. Absolutely. Yeah, it's even it's even funny. Um, you know, you can tell different generations by the way they write their smiley face emoji. There's a linguist who did a study and found that older people put noses in their smiley emoji and younger people don't put noses. Uh, it's just it, it's fascinating. 
Yeah, I've, I've definitely kind of tried to adapt to the changing times because I was on the, I, I think I had an email address in 1993. So I was on the internet very early and I, I had the nose in my uh, emotes just because uh, that's the way it was. But now I just, now I'd never do that. And I, I'm, I try to keep with the times, but I am reminded when I uh, come across a way that is used for different people that just, it's too much ingrained in me. I can't, I can't let it go, you know? Um, but in, in terms of like you were mentioning before, one thing that you do is you follow a bunch of Twitter accounts that give you inspiration for um, discussions related to aspects of the language. But for somebody who is getting into either writing or learning a language, how would you suggest that they try to get exposure to discussions around uh, interesting aspects of that language. So I think one thing that people might not think of and that, that I've been doing more lately is TikTok. Um, you know, I, I got started as quick and dirty tips for writing and my podcast initially was two or three minutes long and now it's two segments and it's 15 minutes long. And, and one thing I've loved about making TikTok videos is getting back to that quick and dirty tips um, concept that I started with. So, you know, I'm out there making 20 second, 30 second videos about one language topic for English. And I post the captions, you know, most, a lot of people post captions. And I think that you can find a lot of that kind of thing on TikTok. You know, people don't think of it as an educational medium. And, and definitely when I go there, it shows me people doing fun dances and I love that or cooking videos and that's great. But if you search the right hashtags, you know, there's edutalk, E-D-U-T-O-K. There's hashtag learn English. Um, there's a whole bunch of educational hashtags you can search to get videos about, about language. And that can be a really fun um, way to learn when you're swiping through at night in bed. You know, you can maybe plug in those hashtags and, and watch, you know, some videos. And I, especially you can find people who use captions if you're learning a language and that's going to help you a lot. And it's interesting you brought that up because this is absolutely one tip that I give people when it comes to learning foreign languages. And it's not just for the content itself that you may be able to absorb. I personally have, and I'm not, not joking about this, I have 14 TikTok accounts and I switch between them and I've trained the algorithm of each account to only show me content in a particular language. So I've definitely, and you know, follow the right hashtags and the right people and so on. But one other reason that I have so many accounts is actually to post on those accounts. And I'd love to hear, because like part of this journey for you has not just been, you know, I'm going to be the, the wise uh, guru on top of the mountain telling people how it is. Part of it, it's also been a, a learning journey for you and you sharing what you're learning um, on of, on all of these platforms. And I use TikTok for that as well. I use it to practice my languages, including the languages I may not be as good at. So for somebody who wants to potentially get into discussing the topic of like what's behind the curtain of languages um, and feels intimidated that maybe, well, they're not smart enough and they don't have necessarily the, the background for this, uh, what would you say to encourage them, given your experience in, in putting content on so many different platforms and maybe talking about topics that were brand new to you personally, 
Uh, how did you deal with that like initial barrier of, well, you know, I mean, obviously you've, you've got the background in studying English in university, but like, h- how do you get through that initial, um, like, I don't know, should I be talking about this? Cause like you said, you're not a linguist, you're, you know, you're, you're grammar girl, which means a completely different thing. And I know I felt that cause I'm also not a linguist, but I talk about language learning. Uh, so how have you grappled with, uh, this, I'm going to share my passion for this topic and I'm not necessarily the world's biggest expert on this. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I always tell people like you should not feel stupid. And I mean, no, you said something about like, oh, I'm not smart enough to do this. It's like, that is just not true. It's, it's not about inherent smartness or not. It's about putting in the time. Um, It's all about being open to learning, being open to new things, putting in the time and, and not being afraid to look stupid. Um, you know, I, it's funny. I went through this period of, I, I think, I think following your passion, what excites you is helps you get over just a mountain of worries and fears. Um, I took this entire career detour where I went into science. I was, you know, as I said, I did English all through high school and and college. After I graduated from college, I got really interested in science of all things. And, you know, I ended up going to graduate school to get a PhD in biology because I worked really hard to get there. And then I was in this program at Stanford and I realized everyone else there had been doing this their whole life. And I was so dumb compared to all of them. I knew so little compared to everyone around me. And it was really intimidating, but I also just loved what I was doing. I loved science and I asked for a lot of help and I got, I got an older student tutored me and, you know, I, I, I was able to do it. And I think it's just, if you're willing to put in the time and energy to become good at something, you can do almost anything. It did become clear to me that I wasn't innately good. I was not innately good at science the way I was innately good at language. It was much harder. I had to work much harder to succeed in science than I had to in English. So, you know, going back to English was like, whew, okay. (laughs) You know, we finished that trial. We ran a marathon and now we're going back to just strolling through the mall because it was so much easier. But if you're willing to do it and you can do anything if you're willing to put in the work, I mean, in terms of self, you know, when, when you're, you know, when you don't have external sort, you know, I'm not saying like anyone can do anything because I know society like limits people and what they can do, but like in terms of your own accomplishments, just, just try work really hard. And, and I I know you believe this heartily too. You cannot be afraid to look stupid. Um, That's how you learn. Everyone's bad at things when they start. And to me, that's the finest time because when you start, right, you're terrible at whatever it is you're trying to do. And you can get better so much faster in the beginning than you can 10 years later when you're making these incremental improvements, but when you're going from zero to one, the amount of improvement you see is amazing and rewarding. And, you know, suddenly you didn't know any words and now, you know, 50 words and, and, you know, that's like percentage wise increase. That's huge. Whereas, you know, 10 years in, you're going to be like, okay, 50 words, whatever. (laughs) Uh, So I, yeah, I just think you can't be afraid. Don't let fear stop you. Like follow, follow what excites you. Love that. Very well said. 
And now one thing that's uh, kind of parallel with uh, how we, we both now work in languages, but we also academically studied a completely different topic. In my case, it was engineering. And I'm, I'm very much aware of, even though, in, uh, unlike you, I actually did feel a- at home in engineering. I kind of, my whole life leading up to that point, I was the technical guy and getting into languages was actually a struggle for me. But putting that aside for a second, even within the language world, there are so many things I can think of that my engineering background has actually given me, given me a, a, an advantage, as it were. And like, for instance, in engineering, we accept that uh, inefficiencies and perfection is not possible. It's why you take into effect things like thermodynamics and wind resistance. When you're building a bridge, you don't imagine an ideal situation. You imagine the world is a chaotic, punishing place, and you're going to make a bridge that is as good as possible. And you're going to iterate and the new iPhone is going to come out every year because you're never going to make the perfect iPhone. And this kind of uh, engineering perspective is something I've truly taken in my philosophy in learning languages. So I would love to hear if the uh, the work you did when you were studying science is because uh, like you said, it was that period of your life was running the marathon. And now you're kind of you put that behind you. But what, what kind of um, learning philosophies did you take from that experience that you think have helped you in the years since? That's a great question because I feel like it's helped me a lot. Um, you wouldn't think it would, but what being trained as a scientist taught me was the the skills of critical thinking and um, being op- actually being open to failure because ex- fail- experiments fail all the time and um, following the data, like follow the data. Like you may have these preconceived notions in science about what you maybe hope your experiment will show. And in language, maybe what you were taught in third grade, you know, but, but it, that's not always true. Like you don't always get the outcome from the experiment you're hoping to get. And, you know, what you learned in third grade is not always true, not always the way everything should be. So being open to change just and and being unbiased, like following whatever the data is telling you. So that's really what and and I will actually read linguistics papers sometimes. Um, you know, when I when I can get them from behind the paywall, get you know, request them from the professor. When it's really when when I find something that seems really um, fascinating or important, I'll go to the original paper and read it. Um, so yeah, I think more than anything that that training in how to think and approach problems I've brought over to Grammar Girl. And that's why my philosophy of language has changed over time too. You know, where I was saying when I was just working as a copy editor and a writer and then started Grammar Girl, I was of the mindset that there are rules and things are right and things are wrong and this is the way you do it. And and after following the data and understanding where the rules come from and how they're applied and it's just that's what led me to realize that okay this is right if you're following ap style this is right if you're following chicago style but it's not right for all of english you know like it's a it's a wonderful mess of a language and you know what makes it fascinating and fun is all the differences the dialects and, and the accents and, you know, just the weird words. I mean, those are parts of dialects, but, um, 
you know, I, so I think being open, open to that because I was trained to follow the data um, has really helped me in language. Excellent. And I, I wanted to go back to your story and how eventually you started this, this whole network of the uh, quick and dirty tips. And it went beyond just your own individual brand of Grammar Girl. So what inspired you to, to do that and what kind of topics were then taken on in this umbrella of quick and dirty tips? Right. Well, so before I was a science and technology writer, I worked at um, internet startups. You know, so like I said, I was in graduate school at Stanford, um, you know, during that time when startups were hot. And so I left graduate school and joined a bunch of startups that all subsequently failed. (laughs) I chose poorly, um, except failure. Um, But, you know, I had been at startups. And so when Grammar Girl took off so quickly, I knew I had a business and I had been at startups and I knew how to make that happen. I was like, this is it. This is my chance. And so, um, you know, I, I started with, it was pretty quickly that I started a network. My, my friend, um, Adam Lowe, who had been, um, actually my co-host for the science podcast, he wanted to start a manners podcast. So he was Mr. Manners. He was the first other host. And then very quickly, I just started adding my friend, actually my, just my friends, you know, I had a, a friend who was a great mom, um, and she became the mighty mommy of CJ fire and, and my, um, one of my neighbors was a really great investor, um, Elizabeth Carlosari. So she became the original money girl. And, you know, I just gathered the people I knew and said, do you want to do this fun thing with me? And, you know, it really, I mean, I, I won't say I didn't have a business model, but I knew, I knew if we could build, so there's the Silicon Valley idea that if you build the traffic, it'll all work out. And so that's the point we were at because the business model, the business model for podcasting was a little amorphous at the time. And so I think I had six or seven shows in the network when I was, and I, and I had been looking for an investor when that um, wall street journal article came. And then um, that was approached, I was approached by um, five New York publishers, but I was looking for a partner. And when I met John Sterling at Macmillan, um, they had a digital initiative. They, it was so fortunate because they were looking to expand their digital business and I was looking for a business partner. And so they got in touch with, with me because of the idea of the books, but we very quickly realized we were on the same page when it came to the business as well. And so the partnership with them really helped it grow into something I wouldn't have been able to make it, um, you know, I'm on my own by myself. Of course. Yeah. So now as, as you uh, imagine, a lot of the topics I tend to talk about on the podcast are related to learning foreign languages. So um, instead of uh, putting you in the spot for that, I would be curious to hear if you have any questions for me that you would be interested to hear in relation to the kind of work you do, but specifically within foreign languages. And feel free to take your time to think about it if you need a minute. Yeah. You know, people who are learning foreign languages ask me the most difficult questions. Um, I can always tell uh, (laughs) and often I cannot answer them because there is there is no answer for a lot of things. Like, why do we say I'm at the restaurant versus in the restaurant or, you know, or what's the difference, what's the difference between saying I'm at the restaurant versus in the restaurant? They're always, they're very often about prepositions. Um, 
these horrible little words <laughs> trip people up. And, you know, as I'm uh, very at the very beginning of trying to learn Spanish, I have even more empathy for people who are learning English because it's it's just so hard. All those little those little words that that don't have, you know, nouns and verbs, they're they're easy. <laughs> but prepositions and articles and things that don't carry as much meaning are so much harder. Um, yeah. So what do you tell people when when they're struggling with those those words that don't have so much meaning? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of aspects to languages that can feel like they beg the question, why? Another one is gender. Like, why is chair feminine, you know? And I I look at this in a very different way because uh, the question why, like you said, there is no answer. Um, and I very simply say that uh, if I take the example of uh, of gender, there, there is, there is actually an answer to that. I don't know if it's as satisfactory to people, but generally the answer is because the ending of the word follows the pattern for uh, that gender in the language. So it's very easy for Spanish because it's O and A most of the time, and then there's consistent exceptions that like M A is uh, always masculine, so it's El problema, not la problema. And there, there's other ways that you, uh, words that end in uh, ION uh, are also tend to always be feminine. So that kind of gets people away from the concept of imagining like, you know, are the little, are the atoms of the chair like wearing dresses or something? I don't understand. And I'm like, no, it doesn't matter the, that stuff. It, don't think of the, the word. Uh, or just sorry, don't think of the concept chair. Just look at the word chair and see how it ends. And that's kind of uh, a bit more of a. So there is generally actually an answer to these questions. And when it comes to am I at a restaurant or in a restaurant, uh, some of these are convention that it's just over time, one word is just generally used more than the other. But then again, there are actually some themes. So there are certain kind of buildings that tend to use at instead of in. And you can find explanations that branch off and show you, here's all the ones that are at, here's all the ones that are in. There's going to be exceptions. There's going to be words that don't follow the pattern. But you will find, and this is why I tell people, the, your biggest friend in these seemingly random but still somewhat consistent rules is the Pareto principle. You want to find the rule that works, the, the rule that only takes you 20% of the effort that works 80% of the time. And that's what you're going to find with all of these things. When it comes to prepositions and why they're, they work one way versus the other, the problem is there's always exceptions. So those exceptions can make you feel like, why even bother learning the rule? And I would say, because it's going to work 80% of the time. 80% is fantastic. And that those exceptions, like people are so quick to point them out. And I feel like this is a, a level of perfectionism that does not work really when you're getting into learning a language that sometimes I just, ex I, I initially decide I'm going to apply this rule all the time. And I apply it also when it's wrong, but you know what? It still means 80% of the time I'm saying it correctly. And with time, I will get that feedback. I, I know another issue people face is, will some form of fossilization come into play here? where I learn the wrong way and I'll say it that way forever. 
And I say, absolutely not. I mean, our, our brains are morphous. We can learn things. We can change how we speak. I intentionally learn how to speak like Tarzan initially. I say things very much incorrectly, but I accept there's a certain stage a bit later that I'm really going to hone in on the, uh, like the, the nitty gritty details, try to get things as clear as I possibly can. Uh, but I don't focus on that so much at the start because at the start, the priority needs to be communication and communication can happen with incorrect grammar. And it's why like my general philosophy with grammar and language learning is you take it with a grain of salt at first. You, you have a glance at some of the rules, but you're not really focused so much on the grammar. You're more focused on vocabulary and phrases and then just generally communicating with those. And then later on, you'll polish the, ele- the edges off. And if anything, grammar becomes so much more interesting when you do it later. When I took German in school, the grammar was, like I said, it was tedious. I didn't like it at all. But then I moved to Germany and I focused on the spoken aspect of the language for a while. And I got around to picking up a grammar book. And this would have been the driest grammar book you can imagine. There were no stories. There were no pictures. It was just a list uh, and like, you know, one of those that are organized with like 4.3.3.1, that that kind of like structure within the book. And yet I found it fascinating because I had so much exposure to the language already that I was seeing a rule and I was thinking, so that's why they say it that way. And the penny dropped. And this is kind of uh, why I try to tell people to look at it a bit of a different way. So that's kind of uh, answering with a, from a few different angles, how I deal with that kind of topic. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, I mean, it's obviously well known that when you immerse yourself in a culture with the language, it's so much easier. You learn so much faster because you're surrounded by it. And one thing I've been thinking is I wonder if putting music on in the background, well, just in my house would help me learn. And I wonder if you would, could, do you have a recommendation? Is there a genre of music that's particularly good for language learning? Like, should I go for slow love songs because the music is slow or, you know, is, does country use the simplest words or, you know, what, is there a good genre for learning uh, Spanish? (laughs) Two, Two things I'd say. Firstly, you mentioned maybe having the music in the background. I would actually, I mean, you could do that. It's, it's not hurting, but I would actually recommend something slightly different. I would recommend an intentional session of listening where it gets all of your focus and where you're listening to the music and you maybe have a browser tab open with the lyrics and you're trying to follow along with those lyrics because uh, a mistake a lot of people make is they feel like just pure osmosis is going to get them to fluency and that's just not going to happen. And I made this mistake myself when I was trying to sit the uh, C2 exam. This is the mastery level exam in German. The only thing I was doing for my listening practice was just having the radio on all day long. And I kind of tuned it out or I, I kind of got the gist of what they were talking about, but I wasn't really focusing. So that, so that would be my f- first point is to make it a bit more intentional and to try to like uh, add songs to what will become your playlist that you'll listen to while you're doing other things. But as you're uh, getting exposure to new songs, try to make a point to really absorb that. And in terms of the genre, this absolutely depends entirely on your tastes. If you like 
you know, dance style music, then that kind of a beat is something you're going to get into in the other language. Obviously, the way certain styles of music uh, is slightly different in different countries, but there's no way I could say anyone learning Spanish should take this genre because you may not like that genre. You know, love songs are a good choice because they tend to be a bit slower. A lot of modern music, they sing very quickly, whereas the whole theme of love songs tends to be a bit slower and more intentionally pronounced. So it does make them easier in a lot of cases. Um, but at the same time, I, I enjoy a good beat personally. So that gets me a bit more invested in the music and feel like I want to sing along to it. Whereas the love songs, like I can sing along to them, but I don't care as much, you know? Um, so it, it really depends on your personal style and you can take your own interests into your language. You don't have to, like ultimately, when you reach a high level in the language, you can get so much great exposure to a vastly different culture and you can see so many things and learn about other genres, absolutely, and other uh, cuisine styles and so many things. But to uh, to ease that transition, I recommend people actually take what they they know they love. If you love comic books, read comic books in your target language. You know, if you have certain hobbies, try to find YouTube videos about those hobbies. If you like certain TV shows, try to watch the same TV shows dubbed into the language because you're, you already have the context of what's happening and you're going to be able to focus a bit more on what they're actually saying. So um, multiple different uh, ways I would tackle that. And hopefully that kind of answers that question. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. So uh, back to me asking you, uh, as you know, this is the language hacking podcast. And I would love to know, does language hacking mean anything to you personally? Or if you were asked to define it, is there some way that uh, you would use this kind of terminology? Oh, I guess I would use it for um, tricks, like like memory tricks, like we were talking about ways of learning that aren't the standard, okay, I bought a book or I'm working through an app. Um, you know, that, that's how I would define it is things, things, ways of learning language that aren't the first thing you think of and ways that make it easier than you might imagine. Very well said. And finally, what have you been working on lately and what are your upcoming projects that you're most excited about? Ah, well, I'm, I'm working on some courses for LinkedIn learning. So, um, a year, a year or two ago, I completed three courses, video courses, um, for LinkedIn learning. And they asked me the first one is to put, what are your, what are your 17 best tips to give people? Like, if you could do just that, what would it be? And so I've, I did those. And that's my first course, which is grammar girls, quick and dirty tips for better writing. Same as all my other stuff. And that's like, what's distill it down to under an hour. And that was such an amazing challenge. And the people who work there, they're, they're experts in online education. So they really helped it. Like it's an amazing course and largely because of their input and guiding me in how to make it the best that it can be. And then after that, we did um, commonly confused words and punctuation. And those three courses exist. And I just found out that those have done so well, they want me to do two more. So I'm doing um, basic, I'm doing grammar fundamentals and writing better email. 
and I'll be working on those. Um, ideally, we'll have those recorded by February and they'll be out sometime early next year. And then like there may be even more they've hinted. So um, and I love working with them at LinkedIn and doing these courses. And 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 they're so they're again, they're back to what I originally started. They're the quick and dirty tips. You know, it, they're maybe a 40 minute course, but they're made up of two minute videos. So it's getting back to my roots and it's, it's making something that, that people tell me they're finding very helpful um, for their professional development or, you know, to use in their university classes or things like that. So yeah, that's the thing I'm excited about right now. That's amazing. Yeah. So I will make sure that people can find links to the already existing LinkedIn uh, courses in the show notes, as well as of course, to your website, your podcast, your books and uh, your social media. Oh, we'll have all of those linked in the show notes. People who are not already following you can go check you out right away. Thank you, Benny. It's been great to catch up with you. Thank you very much. Great to chat to you again. And until the next time, I'll wish everybody listening a very happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave us a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis, Shannon Kennedy, and Elizabeth Bruckner, and produced by Alice Semino, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. The theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.